HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, an employee-owned company that's been making stone ground products for decades. Bob's Red Mill makes it possible to eat healthfully and cook delicious food. Go to bobsredmill.com and use the code Taste of the Past for 25% off your order. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meat and 3 is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit and hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And so many people, hundreds of millions of people, actually, are celebrating um, the beginning of Ramadan this week. And that makes us think about Muslim food. Uh, It makes me think about Muslim food. Although they're fasting, of course, they have to feast to break the fast. Um, And there has just seems to be a proliferation of halal food around major cities, at least. The food trucks that you'll see, the food carts, um, they're in most urban areas. And they've gotten the interest of non-Muslims as well. Well, I don't know whether it's because, as the publisher of the book we're going to talk about says, it doesn't mean anything other than cheap lunch. Uh, but these, these carts have become very, very popular. And my guests, Phoebe... Armanios and Boa Chergene have written a book which um, the 
I believe is probably the first introductory text on halal food. And it's called Halal Food, A History. And they, they talk about the food, the Middle Eastern um, and tra- traditionally Middle Eastern and, and uh, North African, and we'll have them explain that. And they have written this book, which is really a very approachable book. I have to say I have learned a tremendous amount. And it explores what halal food means to Muslims and how its legal and cultural interpretations have changed in different geographies right up to the present day and those halal food cards. Phoebe is an associate professor of history at Middlebury College and the author of Coptic Christianity in Ottoman Egypt. And... Boach Ergene is a professor of history at the University of Vermont. He's the author of Local Court, Provincial Society, and Justice in the Ottoman Empire. And I welcome them both. They're joining us by phone uh, from Vermont. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. You know, it's interesting. I, as I uh, spoke to you right before the show, I have, I have really learned so much from this book. Really never understood what halal food was. I think of it... Of course, mostly as how meat is butchered, and that's I think what and and drinking no alcohol. I mean, I, that's what I think a lot of non-Muslims think about first when they think of of halal food. But this book just really gives such a range, as I said, of textual sources and and all the different laws and beginnings of this. And unlike, not unlike. Christianity or Judaism, um, these are all prescriptive ways of eating from ancient times. Can you tell me exactly like what, what were the beginnings of halal food, and how did it originate? So um, when we talk about halal, we are essentially using a legal category. Halal technically means allowable or permissible. Mm-hmm. And as such, it refers to um, those practices or substances that are considered to be um, acceptable according to Islamic jurisprudential um, traditions. Um, These prescriptions, including the prescriptions that apply to food or dietary practices, find their sources in um, the primary texts of Islam, that is primarily the Quran, the scripture, but also um, in the traditions or stories reflecting Prophet Muhammad's customs, what he did, what he said in specific settings. So um, there are plenty of prescriptions or directions or dictums in these sources of Islam. And what we call halal system is in fact is a construct later developed by subsequent generations of Muslim jurists based on what they find in these primary texts. Mm-hmm. So um, it is, you know, the halal understanding of it is as old as religion, as old as Islam, because they find their sources in the Quran and Hadith literature, that is Prophet Muhammad's traditions. And so we're talking 7th century. That's, that is correct. that's how old, yes. right? right. Uh, well, these rules and these, I mean, these early writings weren't really written down as rules. They were quite vague. So... How did they eventually get set down into these prescriptive orders or rules? So um, you're right about um, that observation. Quran provides some really basic, really concrete um, 
expectations about what Muslims should or should not eat. And um, Prophet Muhammad also during his lifetime, um, according to traditions that passed um, across subsequent generations of Muslims, made specific observations, um, reflected on you know what's acceptable, what's unacceptable to eat. Um, but as Muslims um, spread, um, as Islam spread to um, various corners of the world, um, it became a require, requirement for Muslims to reflect on these earlier traditions as they encountered new cultures, new substance, substances, new flora, new fauna, and the kind of, you know, um, this, this, this new experiences forced them to reflect on how to apply the already inherited traditions to their new circumstances. And the halal system that emerged later on is very much based on this reflection and later elaboration and qualification by subsequent generations of Muslims. I just want to add also that these early sources not only offer the rules and the laws that are the fundamental basis of halal, but, for example, the stories about the Prophet's uh, life, uh, the traditions of the Prophet, the saying of the Prophet, they also tell a lot about the kinds of foods he preferred to eat, the kinds of dishes he might have liked over others or disliked, and that some of those uh, nuances make their way into what we can think of as the, the culinary repertoire of halal. If there was a favorite dish, uh, or, for example, it is said that the Prophet Muhammad broke the Ramadan fast at the end of the day eating uh, some dates. And so it is often a tradition in Islamic countries today for Muslims at the end of the day to break their fast eating some dates. That's the first thing they may consume. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is this also, some of it is tied to rules, what you ought to eat and not to eat, and some of it also offers kind of the favorite things that one might seek out to eat as well. And, well, in the book, you also you you list some of the verses that appear either they were in the Quran or some of the writings of some of the companions, and there is also an exception that if well if you can't I, I forget how it goes but if, it, if you can't abide by some of these rules it's okay because we will forgive you, so here they give the rules and then they give an exception if you're thoughtful right. That is very correct, actually. You know, and, and that flexibility is, in fact, one way of religion's um, acknowledgement, um, you know, appreciation of the difficulties of life, too. These are the requirements that, you know, Muslims are supposed to follow, but at the same time, there may be circumstances um, that might be really difficult for them to follow these requirements. And, um, you know, Scripture makes it sure that to Muslims to understand that God is, you know, also uh, forgiving if there are circumstances in which they cannot abide by these rules, yes. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's it, in any, in, in well, the, the two other major religions of Christianity and Judaism and their food uh, rules, in the early days when these religions first evolved, there were tremendous concerns for food purity and, and so for cleanliness and health reasons. I mean, they were, they were concerned about, you know, keeping their flock alive. Um, and food in that pre-Islamic Arabia, where, you know, this is, we're taking place, was, to say the least, scarce or, you know, precious, very precious. Is, were you, why? Why do you think these rules came about? Um, the rules came about because um, that was one way um, for those populations living in Arabia in the 7th century earlier and later, because food is directly reflected 
reflective of or symbolic of identity. Um, one's communal identity, one's difference um, of, you know, um, from the members of other groups of people, essentially, is very much based on um, something really, really primary, something really, really important for life, and that is what you eat and what you avoid. So in a sense, um, there are hypotheses out there in food history. What differentiates one person from the another is this, you know, first of all, you know, um, uh, attitudes towards food, attitudes towards resources that are available to you, but also kind of, you know, how you differentiate yourself from other communities. So in a sense, um, that those prescriptions, those requirements that you find in the scripture, but also in um, the traditions, are in fact people's way of thinking about themselves and how th- that those group of people are different from the communities surrounding them. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very important because also in those um, scriptures was a, a recipe for life. I mean, it, you know, who you could marry, who you couldn't marry. And so it's all about, you know, living a good and pure life, I guess, right? Yeah, it is. And actually, this is interesting when you think about these the three major monotheistic traditions coming out of the near the ancient Near East. Um, they all have varying and different attention to food rules. We we often think of Christianity in very permissible food terms, you know, the idea that Christians can eat everything. But we forget the the roots, for example, of a lot of fasting traditions yeah. mm-hmm. or Lent or the abandonment of food uh, as also being a core part of, of Christian faith with, with which more people might be familiar in our culture. So, uh, so and there are even Christian denominations uh, throughout the world today that might turn to certain food prohibitions, uh, giving up the pig or giving up um, even alcohol in some cases. So we see, um, as, as Boach mentioned, the idea of the food rules you set, the dietary uh, uh, rituals that you follow as being an important marker of how your faith is articulated. Absolutely. And it, what's nice, you in, in the back of the book, um, you give a very um, good descriptive chart of the three major monotheistic religions and their different rules about different practices of food. And I, I, that I found very helpful as well, and very similar to one another as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, well, obviously, a lot of those rules have evolved over time. Now, have they gotten more stringent or less stringent or just more encompassing? How, in particular, have they evolved over time? So, um, there's an aspect of Islamic law really interesting um, in, re- in relation to question that you asked. So, um, Islamic law, like many um, legal systems based on um, religion, um, has a challenge in front of it, right? You know, as time passes, as history evolves, um, the, the religious law has to remain faithful to the origins, um, mm-hmm. the sources of religion to some extent. So there is a the sense of continuity, which is really important for a system of law to remain, to continue to call itself as religiously based. You have to acknowledge earlier sources, you have to acknowledge earlier um, um, jurisprudential interpretations. That's one level of challenge. At the same time, to remain valid, to remain relevant for um, religious communities that are, you know, followers or, or kind of subscribe to that legal system, it needs to provide, the legal system needs to provide um, viable and practical solutions to new circumstances, new challenges, new problems. 
and, and that's another layer of complication. When you bring those two challenges together, you find at some levels a level of continuity, which you may call actually an expectation to remain faithful to earlier prescriptions, but at the same time, another challenge to innovate to some extent within very strict limits. So um, the idea of Islam spreading, you know, finding a place, finding a home in different communities in the world, kind of, you know, extending from, let's say, northern Africa to South Asia, um, created this diversity in itself that has to be recognized, you know, as a part of a single system, but at the same time, um, pragmatic enough to be able to um, kind of provide answers to kind of circumstances that Muslims found themselves in their different settings. So in a sense, you know, there's a complication there, which is really, really interesting. But at the same time, when you look at it, you find one single, to some extent, unified, um, you know, way of thinking about law and religion. Linda, I would also say that, um, to your question, that there are complications in all kinds of food matters in our modern world today. So this isn't just a question that's being dealt by different religious leaders uh, trying to figure out what is kosher, for example, or Mm -hmm. what is halal, or what is consumable, but all kinds of food uh, matters are, are being discussed in our culture. What what does a product contain? How is it made? What are the, what are the sources of its ingredients? Uh, if it's a meat product, how were animals treated, and so on? So, on some level, to the issue of are things becoming more complicated? I think matters of food in general in our world today are becoming complicated because mm-hmm. of food manufacturing, different uh, you know mass production of, of various uh, food products, and so on. And and so new questions are being asked that weren't asked before, and and then there is this sense of how do we return to the original sources, be faithful to the religious tradition while addressing these new challenges. Absolutely. I mean, that was excellent, right where I was going to go <laughs> when, you, mm-hmm. when you said that, because you... Um, you talk about manufactured foods and additives, and, and you mentioned um, Roger Horowitz, who was a guest on my show when he wrote the, the Kosher book, um, and his interesting tale on, on how the Kosher uh, certification um, authorities dealt with gelatin and how you know, a, a, a chemist figured that one out. These are all things in the modern world that, of course, as you just said, uh, purity, additives, um, manufactured foods, yeah, what do they contain, the, the, as you mentioned, the, the butchering. Um, so the butchering is very similar to, um, to kosher butchering in a way. Can you describe what the, what the restrictions on the, on the halal butcher, you know, butchering ethics are? So, it, 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 you know, um, the... One of the things that makes this, especially in modern periods, butchering relatively contentious is among Muslims, or not contentious, may, may not be the right word, but, you know, um, subject to debate is that um, what is considered to be, you know, the appropriate way of, you know, killing animals. And in, 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 in what fashions different forms of killing lead to food that is meat that is consumable. So um, to answer your question, the short answer, yes, there are many parallels between um, kosher slaughter and, and halal slaughter, um, although um, some might argue that, you know, um, the kind of expectations um, regarding, for example, what parts of the body of the animal um, is consumable and what parts aren't, you know, we don't find um, 
you know, uh, that level of um, kind of, you know, um, scrutiny in, in, in halal slaughter, although there are many different kind of, you know, Islamic legal prescriptions, and there are variations among Muslim jurists about, you know, for example, um, certain organs are consumable, certain organs are not consumable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in very general terms, you know, uh, this is a really, you know, parallel, similar kind of practice. Um, there are minor differences about what kind of, you know, knife um, being used for Muslims um, for halal slaughter versus um, kosher slaughter. Um, but this is um, a really a compilation of a technical but also ritualistic kind of, you know, performance, if you will. You know, um, at certain points, um, certain, um, you know, um, uh, pronunciations should be made. For example, um, the, the animals should be um, kind of, you know, um, slaughtered in the name of um, the divine, perhaps. Um, you know, um, it should be facing the direction of Mecca, um, and, and, and it, more importantly, from many Muslim perspectives, it should be painless. Um, that, 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 and that aspect of mercy, that aspect of not causing any pain to animals in the process, and not necessarily physical pain, but also emotional pain. For example, many um, halal slaughter expectations prevent um, slaughterers, um, you know, making animals see other animals before them that's going to the slaughter place so that, you know, the mental anguish could be prevented as much as possible. Now, the question to what extent, you know, these prescriptions are are followed is a different issue. um, but the, the system, the legal system, um, requires Muslims to cause as, as little pain, physical pain and mental pain to animals as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because now a lot of the smaller um, sustainable and, and humane slaughterhouses are adopting these same, these same practices. And, uh, and, and as you said, Phoebe, it's sort of melded into our, our concerns in the modern world about our food, where it comes from, what's added, what's in it. And it's interesting that it's all kind of, it it all has a very early beginning. Um, You had, well, I'm going to hold off onto the next section because the the next section will get into more modern times. And we're going to talk about big business and the economics of halal food. So stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. And Bob's Red Mill is one of the generous sponsors of programming here at Heritage Radio Network. And you probably have seen Bob's Red Mill in your local grocery stores. It's become very popular in the past few years, and some stores have, in fact, whole wall displays of them. Usually you find them where they have the the bins of grains and, and things like that. And there's a reason that the displays have gotten larger and their popularity has grown, because their products are really good. They have, you know, I usually think of them as, as uh, for their flowers, their stone ground flowers and, and meals and grains. But now I'm surprised to see they have a wide variety of, of unusual ingredients, like seeds, flax seeds, chia seeds, uh, quinoa, farro. Uh, their oats, I said their oats were good. And you know, it's kind of an int- oh, coconut flakes. You know, I have a bag of coconut flakes that I was afraid I wanted to keep them. I didn't have complete uh, use of the whole bag, so I put them in the freezer. I think they're still fresh. I was thinking what to do with all those products. You could put them all together and make 
overnight oats. Or mix them up with a little maple syrup or brown sugar and make some granola. So many uses for these products. And I encourage you to go online and check out their whole product line at bobsredmill.com and use the code Taste of the Past for 25% off your order. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Phoebe Armanios and Boich Ergene. They are Middle Eastern historians, and they have written a recently published book called Halal Food, A History. And um, you both, you wrote in the book, and I quote, Halal has recently been transformed from an obscure set of religious prescriptions for observant Muslims into something that is increasingly mainstream, and even appealing to non-Muslims. Explain that a little further. What, what do you mean, what, what did you mean by that? You know, quick lunches, or assurance of food purity? What's, what, what's the appeal? What do you think? Well, for sure, for sure in big cosmopolitan center where, uh, centers where I would argue most people's encounter with just the word halal is probably happening in a kind of fast food sector, fast food environment. Mm-hmm. So I, I think on maybe one of the first levels is the idea that in, in the modern period, in, in the last 20 or 30 years, halal, especially in non-Muslim countries, has appeared to us in, in the restaurant sector, in the, in the food carts or the food trucks, uh, selling this food that's labeled with, with something that I, I think it's not unclear what it might mean to the casual walker by. Is, does it mean Middle Eastern food? Does it mean a religiously oriented food? Or as you're implying, Linda, maybe to some people there is some awareness or knowledge that it could mean a, a particular way of uh, sourcing the meat, uh, maybe a particular way of killing an animal, and, and it could, in fact, have all these other implications uh, tied into it. So uh, so there is this encounter of it being uh, maybe a culinary category, um, a kind of representative of an ethnic food culture, and, and that is appealing for uh, people who are not following necessarily religious rules or non-Muslims, uh, because it, in the cosmopolitan area, it just could be some Thing to try that's new, something that's interesting or delicious or a quick lunch, if you will. Um, on the other hand, we, we are seeing the proliferation of this term being used to also imply uh, an ethical way of, of sourcing ingredients, of, of butchering an animal, uh, and, and that also has appeal for many non-Muslims who equally care about where their food is coming from. So you mm-hmm. can see it coming from two different angles that right. way. Right, absolutely. Well, I, I said we would talk about big biz, big business, and of course, you know there are there's been a a, a movement of Muslims. They're not just in Islamic countries necessarily anymore, and they're living all over the world. And entrepreneurs and big business are they're not blind to that one. So, what's happening in the business world um, in addressing the the um, the economic markets of, of those who are looking for halal foods. So if you read the literature on the economic aspects of this halal 
sector and growth of it, um, there is a little, great deal of excitement among um, the, the observers of those people who are um, following what's going on in quote-unquote in halal business, in halal quote-unquote markets. Mm-hmm. Um, people, um, experts, are recognizing um, growth potential um, in the economic side of the things. Um, they feel that um, both the populations um, of Muslims um, increasing, um, and therefore there is a demand for halal, you know, substances, and not necessarily only food, but in other, um, you know, sectors as well, for example, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals. Hmm. So the population is increasing. But at the same time, and this is not only, um, you know, in the West, in Muslim diasporas, but also in Muslim-majority um, countries or um, places, but also um, the economic circumstances of the Muslim population is increasing too. So, so there is a two-sided kind of, you know, um, two factors that are affecting the demand for halal too. Um, and, and add to that the, the you know, the, the, the value attributed by Muslims living in diaspora settings or Muslim majority settings mm-hmm. um, to the, the, what halal signifies as a, as a, as a basis of identity. That consciousness itself has been, um, you know, becoming much more pronounced um, in many um, Muslim populations. So um, basically, due to this, you know, stimulation in the demand demand side of the the equation, um, many companies, many entrepreneurs, um, many people who are interested in, you know, uh, Muslim economies are identifying this spur, in fact, you know, in the halal markets. And people are, you know, these experts are thinking that this this trend will continue. Um, Right now, the halal sectors globally is valued around $1.2, $1.25 trillion. um, This Mm -hmm. is only food, by the Mm way. Um, um, In in four or five years, that might reach to anywhere between $1.9 or um, $2 trillion, again, only in food sector. Um, that is a major growth, essentially. So there is a lot of excitement, and people are trying to, entrepreneurs are trying to, and businesses and countries are trying to take advantage of this, this trend. Yeah, I was not surprised to to read that um, the major global producers of halal food are, are primarily um, in Malaysia. I had gone to a food um, conference or presentation, and and there are all these products uh, from Malaysia and you know other parts of Indonesia, and was really. Um, Really quite interesting to see that. that. That is correct. Actually, that tells another side of the story, which I haven't mentioned. Too. There is a demand-side demand stimulation of the market, but there is also supply-side, too, producers. Um, people, companies who are interested in um, producing or investing in or producing versions of products that people already use, but they are halal versions of it. That is creating a level of consciousness among the consumers, which is, again, stimulating um, the demand. When mm-hmm. you know that there is a halal version of chocolate outside there, you know, in the market, in the supermarket, you know, uh, many Muslims will prefer that halal chocolate, that will, you know, additionally stimulate the market demand for it, too, which adds another layer of, um, you know, complexity to the economic issues. Right. And I was interested to, see, to read that there really is no, of course, it's a lot like the, the kosher symbol. There's no one particular certification symbol to look for. And that is an issue, right? Um, that is indicative of the fact that halal regulations have not been completely 100% um, standardized in the sector. And that's one issue that um, those parties involved in um, the economic side of halal have been trying to develop, right? You know, um, 
the basic halal uh, requirements are well known and well accepted among you know Muslims all over the world. But when it comes to, for example, um, specific minute regulatory regulations or prescriptions or dictums about, for example, in the manufacturers of the manufactured goods, there is no 100 level, you know degree um, consensus agreement on these issues. Um, because there is no such consensus, there are multiple halal standards, and because there are multiple halal standards, um, there are multiple kind of um, symbols of halal, which do not necessarily um, um, correspond 100%. Many countries, such as Malaysia, such as, for example, you know, um, Indonesia, they develop their own halal standards. They are largely, I would say, 90-95% um, um, consistent, but uh, there are very variations among them, too. So it, is diffi- it becomes difficult for the consumer to kind of identify which halal standard, you know, a particular product in the market um, is considered to be halal uh, with reference to, and with, to what extent, you know, um, how, how much that, that, you know, the halalness of that product, um, to what extent is applicable to hal- other considerations of halalness. <laughs> and I, it, I did a search to look for the symbol, so I'm, I'm searching online, and it's like the list, the symbols um, that would be stamped on a package, let's say, just it just goes on and on and on, and say, well, which one, which one is the right one? So there was no right one. I see that, and they are all copyrighted. <laughs> <laughs> all copyright, right, right, indeed. Well, as as much as for the products that you buy and, and that are or and that are being sold um, to those who who want to make sure that the food is halal. There is also now the term, as you have written about, halal cuisine. You talk about that a little bit, as opposed to just halal food. Yeah, or or even halal cooking. Right. <laughs> I right. think it's all conflated sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is a fairly recent, still very ongoing, tentative, difficult-to-define term that's being used by a few um, well-known, globally-situated Muslim entrepreneurs or chefs or people involved in the food and cooking business uh, as tied to halal. And what it is exactly they mean when they're using it is not fully clear. Um, because we, we often, in food studies or food scholars who study these, the term cuisine, tie it correctly in the historical context to, to nationalism or a nation state or uh, some a country with a border and, and so on. But what does one do when, when the term is now being used uh, in reference to a, a set of religious dietary rules? Mm-hmm. And what are people meaning when they use it? And, and so when we talk about that in the book, we, we want to definitely um, evoke that this is a very tentative and still ambiguous, un- unclear term. But but it, what I what I think is coming through from what people intended to mean it's it's a way to really think about taking traditional recipes that are coming from well-known cultures or cuisines, say French or um, you know Italian, and these recipes may include ingredients that would not be considered halal. And so how does one go through a process of re, uh, reformulating or adapting these recipes to a halal lifestyle? And so we have new new cooks or blog writers or cookbook authors who are becoming um, you know well known for for acting as mediators to Muslims trying to figure out how do I make you know 
pasta that's made with possibly some white wine sauce, uh, and how do I adapt that to my halal worldview? So, uh, and in that process, these interlocutors are arguing that they are essentially the producers or the innovators of something called halal cuisine. But it is it has a, a confusing uh, aspect to it because it's, it is this transnational, you know, Muslim cuisine comes from all over the Islamic world. So yeah. it doesn't have that national link. You know, it's, it's confusing for um, any foods that you talk about because it, there's, you know, food of the Western world, food of um, Italy, or is it cuisine. I mean, when do you when do you change the term from, you know, food and cooking as you said to cuisine? Then, you know, it's like an identifier identifying the um, you know, a, a culture. And it's very interesting, very interesting uh, term yeah, indeed. and I, I do think it is tied to what we mentioned earlier, this idea of now food becoming a very core part of constructing an identity, and especially for uh, for diaspora communities. So turning to food to be your anchor and your your marker of, of who you are and, and where you come from. And, and it just so happens that when people are asking those questions when it comes to halal, it's, it's, come, it's being articulated in these religious dietary frameworks. And I was not surprised at all to hear that, of course, France has oat halal, (laughs) which I thought that was that was uh, humorous, (laughs) to to say the least. I mean, you know, their their cooking and their foods have to be a little bit better, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And and this is a this is a question on you know the French Muslims in France who want to be part of this incredible culinary effervescence that's represented in French cuisine, but you know might be excluded by the use of. Uh, particular ingredients, namely pork and, and alcohol. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. so the idea of how do we make that, reify that, take that up, and, and still make it acceptable within, you know, with their, their standards. Right. Um, a, f- a colleague of mine has, is soon to come out next week, just written a book on um, the food of the Islamic world. Now, that's not to say that all the food is halal. I would imagine it is, you know, halal. But we're talking about regions that, as you said, it's the same, the same cuisine, or Middle Eastern food, or North African food, or, or, or South Asian um, foods, um, and yet, and she noticed the differences of just the, you know, a proliferation of particular spices in one dish as opposed to another, and um, it's a that's an interesting concept too. That it's it so it sh- you're not necessarily separating or identifying something. The dish is not totally different in some regards. Um, Middle Eastern food, particularly, would be the same same dishes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're spot on, and I I, I do think that going back to the halal cuisine market, it is different than saying food of the Islamic world for sure, because the Islamic world encompasses a, a variety of non-Muslim communities right. that live there, and they had their own relig- uh, religious and food traditions that they brought into the mix. So obviously, and those would be, you know, thought, you know, maybe the the line between them would be a little fuzzy, but they would would have been constructed as maybe belonging to their own communities rather than to, to the broader community. Mm-hmm. The, 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 just, just to add something here, the notion itself, halal cuisine, um, it's um, popular in Western settings. If you don't go to Egypt, if you don't go to Turkey, if you don't go to Mal- if you go to Turkey or Egypt or Malaysia, nobody talks about halal cuisine. So um, one actually wonders about why the notion is 
becoming so popular in many Western settings, does that mean that um, in many Western settings a Muslim, um, regardless of that person's um, geographical background or ethnic background, is primarily identified as an um, individual with reference to his or her religion. Um, and in that sense, the religious identity is becoming much more pronounced in identifying that person, um, regardless of his or her um, kind of background. So that might be indicative of a cultural trend that we are in the middle of right mm. now. So that mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. And what about restaurants? Yeah, so um, so restaurants are, you know, and again, the, the, back to the issue of where, where does labeling a restaurant as halal carry weight or have meaning? And I would argue it starts in diaspora communities where Muslims are living as a minority in, in Europe, North America, you know, other parts of the world, where there was initially a demand maybe among a local immigrant population to have somewhere to eat that uh, met their dietary needs and so on. Um, so the idea of if you're in a majority Muslim country and just go to a restaurant, there's already an assumption that it is cooking, serving halal food because right. you are in a majority Muslim right. country. Yeah. So the, the term is maybe had it, you know, the idea of halal dining out, you know, more or less being part of, of the, the non, in non-Muslim settings is, is important. Having said that, there are increasingly exceptions to the rule, and I, I would take some of the food carts that we start our conversation with as a really great example of that. So the, the New York uh, franchise, the Halal Guys, which has a very popular food, food cart business, and now um, brick-and-mortar stores, Selling, um, you know, this fast food type Middle Eastern inspired dishes. They they are now franchising globally and opening up restaurants uh, in in plans to open up restaurants in the years to come in Muslim countries. Uh, so it's kind of taking what was essentially an American halal, you know, fusion dining experience and taking that elsewhere and now um, branding that in in the Muslim world. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, this is, as I say, it's just a wealth of knowledge for um, for someone who is not familiar with halal food or thinks they know just a little bit or certainly has eaten food from a cart, a food cart. Um, <laughs> what I like about it is that it is very a very approachable book for um, for the general public and not just a you know a a, um, a scholarly research book. It it is that, but it is written in a way that, you know, it's, it makes it very understandable and very interesting to everyone. And I thank you so much. I thank you for joining me on the show to share your knowledge about the, the topic and for writing the book, because I think it's an important book to have out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Okay. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You're welcome. And the book, again, is Halal Food, A History by Phoebe Armanios and Boach Ergene. And thanks for listening. Again, this has been another taste of the past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.